April 8th, Easter Sunday, 2012. Thank you. speak from the Upadesh Amrita, the Nectar of Instruction. Text 4. Dadati pradigrinati guyamakyati prichati bote bojaite jaiva sadvidam prittivakshanam Offering gifts and charity, accepting charitable gifts, revealing one's mind and confidence, inquiring confidentially Accepting prasad and offering prasad are the six symptoms of love shared by one devotee and another. So Prabhupada makes two, I feel, extraordinary statements in this purport here. He says that the International Society for Krishna Consciousness has been established to facilitate these six kinds of loving exchanges between devotees. It would be interesting to research the purposes for ISKCON that Srila Prabhupada gives throughout his purports. Of course, he listed seven purposes for ISKCON, and one of them was to bring the members closer to each other, closer to each other and to Krishna. So, Prabhupada saying that this International Society for Krishna Consciousness has been established to facilitate these six loving exchanges. And then he says the life of the Krishna Conscious Society is nourished by these six times of loving exchanges. Now, Srila Prabhupada makes the point here. Okay, says that Sangat Sanjayate Kama, that we're affected by our association. Does anyone know where, san, where san, Sangat Sanjayate Kama comes from? What verse is that from? It's Bhagavad Gita. It's when you're affected by the modes of nature. Well, that's a different verse. That's Karnas Gunasangasya Sadasad. Yes, that's a different one. A very similar meaning, but the context of Sangat Sanjayate Kama is very interesting. Anybody have any remembrance of what chapter it's in? Or what context? Because the context is fascinating. It's about uh, being affected by the objects of the senses. Yes, exactly. It's from the second chapter. It's text 62. And it's that by contemplating the objects of the senses, one develops attraction. And from attraction, lust develops. So that's this Sangat Sanjayate, Kama. Jayate is to be born. From Sangha is born Kama. From attachment is born desire. Now we generally think of those verses in a negative way. You contemplate sense objects, you become attached to them, you get a great desire for them, then you become angry when you don't achieve them, or you become angry when you achieve them and they're not what you thought you would be, they would be. Or you become angry when you achieve them, they're perfect, and then they're temporary. And from the anger comes bewilderment of memory, then loss of intelligence and falling down in the material pool. But here Srila Prabhupada, and in many places, is referring to the Sangha Sanjayate Kama in, re- in a general reference 
that we develop desires according to our association. We develop desires according to with whom we associate and with what we associate. And therefore we can understand that this idea of association is not some sort of detail. It's not just that we you know, don't eat meat, fish, or eggs, don't take intoxication, don't have illicit sex, don't gamble, chant 16 rounds of the Hare Krishna mantra, read Prabhupada's books. We also need to associate with saintly persons. And there has to be a certain kind of association with saintly persons, with devotees. And this is one of the secrets to success. It's what nourishes our Krishna consciousness. If we're following the practices of Krishna consciousness and we're not achieving this intense attachment to Krishna, then it's possible that we might want to pay some more attention to this association with devotees. One of the gentlemen here yesterday was asking, you know, if we just follow, and he's here today, he was saying if we just follow the process, we'll be able to think about Krishna at the time of death. And that was the end of the, we were getting ready to leave, so I just gave a simple yes. But I was really meditating on what does it mean to follow the process, and particularly to associate with devotees. Now if we look at the nectar of instruction itself, where this verse occurs in the Nectar of Instruction, which is, by the way, an extraordinary book, that in 11 verses we go from human life, the beginning of human life, sense control, control of the mind, control of anger, to being with Radharani at Radhakund. So it's a very simple uh, sutra, sort of in a, in a short form, uh, one of the essential expressions of the progression of Krishna consciousness. I think it was here I talked about Madhurya Kanambani and Shraddha Was that here? No, it wasn't here? You've been going in and out. Yes, I did. And I was talking about how I found 18 different progressions. Yes, I, I thought it was it. Okay, so one of them is this. One of the ways of describing the progression of Krishna consciousness is this book itself. Starting from sense and mind control and ending up at Radhakund. So if we look at this book as a progression... So first verse, Vacho Vegam, Manasakrota Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Uttarabhasta Vegam, that one should control the body, mind, and speech. Then the next two verses are what one shouldn't do and what one should do. And then we come to this verse about association with devotees. So we can understand this, that until we've gotten our own act together, it's very difficult to associate with other devotees. If I can't control my anger, if I can't control my mind, if I can't control my tongue, belly, and genitals, if you know, I'm not enthusiastic, confident, and patient, if I'm collecting too many things, if I'm talking nonsense, I'm not going to be a fit person to associate with devotees. I won't be able to take advantage of the association of devotees. I was just finished reading Mukundamarsh's book about when he met Shiva Prabhupada, and his account of the starting of the temples in New York, San Francisco, and London. And we see that Shiva Prabhupada met a lot of people who really couldn't take advantage of his association. They couldn't really understand. They might have had some appreciation for him as a spiritual leader, but because they weren't themselves purified, they really couldn't understand what kind of person they were associating with or take advantage of that association. So on the one hand, before we can follow what we're going to discuss today, we have to have ourself under control. If I, if I come in the association of devotees and I'm eating too much or of the wrong things or I'm collecting too much or of the wrong things or I'm just uh, constantly hearing nonsense or talking nonsense, 
I won't really be able to associate with the devotees nicely. In fact, I won't even perceive them nicely. I'll perceive the devotees, Atmavan Manyatejagat, I'll perceive the devotees according to my own material conceptions. So I recently posted an article on, uh, it's posted on Dundavats and Iskhan.com and a few other places, written from a sociological perspective to some extent on what is Iskhan and what does it mean to be a member of Iskhan. So I found a number of quotes where Prabhupada was saying that this Iskhan movement, it is the Leela of the Lord, it's the Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. One can also say that this Iskhan movement, it is a society meant for the, the inner Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu or the external Leela, that of the preaching mission. One can also say that this movement is meant for personal purification, for liberation from the cycle of birth and death. One can say that this movement is for establishing dharma, for establishing things like varnashram. Uh, then one can also see that this movement is, uh, is simply for getting a position and getting some uh, money and getting some power. So that's according to the modes of material nature. So if one's in the mode of ignorance, one will think that this movement is for getting some position and power and some money. If one's in the mode of passion, one will think it's for establishing mundane dharma. If one's in the mode of goodness, one will think it's for personal purification and salvation. If one is in transcendence, then one will see it as, the, as a means for preaching or as the leela of the Lord. So according to our own mentality, not only will we see this ISKCON society in terms of what we're here for, but we'll also interpret other people's actions according to our own mentality. So if I'm experiencing this Hare Krishna movement as the pastimes of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then I'll see that everyone has their role in the pastimes. And there are even people in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's pastimes who we could say are antagonists. There's Ramachandra Puri, who is very critical of the Lord. Uh, there's the, the Patan soldiers who accuse the Lord of giving his associates some sort of poison and stealing their money. So in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's pastimes are also antagonists, uh, but they all have some association with the Lord. So I'll see things like that. And if I'm in the mode of ignorance, and if I'm here just for some comfortable life or some position or something like that, I'll see everybody else like that also. So in order, my point is that in order to properly associate with the devotees, we ourselves have to have some purified consciousness. I have to see the devotees as they are, and I have to see the Hare Krishna movement on at least, let's say, the mode of passion and goodness, if not transcendence. So we could say, therefore, that the first three verses of the Upadeshamrita are the foundation for this fourth verse. On the other hand, we can also say that this fourth verse gives us the energy and enthusiasm to do the first three verses. That by the association with devotees, in the proper way, I get the enthusiasm to control my senses. I get the enthusiasm to talk about Krishna. I, get, I become enthusiastic, patient, and confident. I get the impetus not to over-collect or to talk nonsense. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. You'll find a lot of things in Krishna consciousness are like that. They're sort of like a circle. It's hard to know where, to, where do you start. Is it the association of devotees that gives us the strength to become personally purified, or is it our personal purification that allows us to properly associate with the devotees, where exactly does it begin? And of course, it all does fit together. 
In fact, Satama Prasanga Manavirya Samvido, Bhavanti Rikarni Rasayan Ankata, Tadjyoshan Advat Bhapabharga Bhartmani, Shraddha Bhatir Bhaktir Anu Kamishriti. So Lord Kapila Dev explaining the progress of bhakti starts out with Satam Prasanga. Satam, Sat means eternal, and Sat also often refers to the devotees, people who are interested in the eternal, people who are absorbing their mind in the eternal. Prasanga, not only Sangha, association, but Prasanga, very deep association. So one can also see, and this I haven't put this into one of my, this would be number 19 in my progress a chart. I haven't developed this one yet. But one can also see the progress of spiritual life as deeper and deeper, more and more meaningful type of association with sadhus. All right. So we have a little sutra for this verse. And I didn't make this up. I was working with a devotee a long time ago. I'm doing a study guide for the nectar of instruction. And he came up with this. Serving devotees is the key to open our hearts and set us free. Like that. His name is Murlidhar. He's a disciple of Pure uh, Krishna's woman. Serving devotees is the key to open our hearts and set us free. You like that? Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. We should have that up on a board or something. Like that. Well, can we repeat that together? Serving devotees is the key. To open our hearts and set us free. All right, why don't you say that? Why don't we say that two more times and I'll ask you that at the end. Serving devotees is the key. To open our hearts and set us free. Serving devotees is the key. To open our hearts and set us free. So how do we associate with devotees as given in this verse? We basically do three things. And each of those three things is a give and take. So what are the three things? They involve what? Revealing your mind and conduct. Mind. And listening to others. Yeah, okay, that's one thing. And the next? Exchange of, exchange of things. Exchange of, of, yeah, each one of them is an exchange. So this is an exchange of confidences. This is an exchange of? Prasadam. Of prasadam and gifts. So, so confidences, prasadam, and gifts. And Prabhupada makes the point in this purport that these exchanges exist even in material relationships. These are the, the basic way of establishing relationship, confidences, gifts, and food. And by the way, these exist also in the spiritual realm. So the devotees are exchanging confidences, gifts, and food in the spiritual realm. Radharani's cooking for Krishna, she's giving Krishna something to eat. He's leaving some remnants on his plate. The remnants are collected by Radharani's friends and brought back to Radharani to eat as the prasadam. And then she leaves some remnants which are distributed to her friends. So this giving and taking of food, although of course there's no eating and digestion in the spiritual world as there is here. We can't really understand, well, how do they cook and how do they eat? And it's not related to our physiological processes but they have some sort of exchange of food. And of course, they're giving each other gifts. Do you all know the story of the pearl pastime? Anybody know the story of the pearl pastime? Anybody? Yeah. So if you go today to uh, Radhakund and Govardhan, so if you go on the path around Govardhan, right before you get to Radhakund, there's a little lane on the side that goes through a little kind of 
sub 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 village, <laughs> a villagette of a few huts. Not very many people go down that way, and you know that because when you start going down that way, the children will all stare at you. The places where there are tourists all the time, nobody stares at you anymore. I mean, they may ask you for money, but they won't stare at you. But the places where tourists hardly ever go, you still get these. You know. So you go down this, this little path, and you come to a little pond, a little kund, and it hasn't been very well maintained. There's not that many people go there. But on the bank of this little pond, so one time, Radharani and her friends were making ornaments out of pearls. So Krishna came by and saw them and said, Oh, what nice pearls, can I have some? And they didn't even bother to answer him. They ignored him. That in and of itself is actually rather astonishing because Krishna is the most attractive. Prahlad Maharaj says, I can't help but be attracted to Krishna like iron is attracted to a magnet. So how is it that the gopis pretend that they're not attracted to Krishna? It's actually quite extraordinary. So they just ignore him. And he keeps asking them. And they keep ignoring him. And finally he said, can't you give me just four pearls? Give me four, four of your best pearls and I use them to decorate the horns of two of my favorite cows. And Lalita says, I'm not going to give you our best pearls for your cows. Now go away. So Krishna goes away, and he goes home, and he goes to his mother, and he says, my dear mother, I would like to grow some pearl plants. Can you please give me some pearls to plant? And Mother Soda says, my dear boy, pearls don't grow on plants. They come from oysters in the water. You can't grow pearls. And Krishna says, Oh, Mommy, please, can I plant some pearls? So Krishna's a very spoiled child. Mother Yusoda's a very indulgent mother. So after Krishna pleads and begs, she says, Okay, okay, you can plant some pearls. Yusoda's mood. She doesn't mind if her pearls get ruined as long as Krishna's happy. So she gives Krishna some pearls and he plants them in the ground. And he says, Mother, can I have some milk to water my pearls? She says, My dear boy, you don't water plants with milk. You water them with water. Oh, but Mommy, my, my pearl plants need milk to grow. I'm sorry, boy, we don't water things with milk. Oh, please. So she says, Okay. So she gives him some milk. So he's pouring milk on his pearls that are in the ground. And of course, the gopis are all laughing at him. And, of course, as you can imagine, what happens is these plants come out of the ground, and first they have these flowers that are spreading a fragrance all over Vrindavan. Everyone's noticing, what is that incredible fragrance? It's just like my son, my oldest son lives in Hawaii, and as soon as you get off the plane, you smell the fragrance of all of the flowering trees. Or it's out in the garden, immediately you smell, smell the hyacinths, <coughs> plants. So what is that fragrance? Oh, it's Krishna's pearl plants. And then from the fragrant flowers there came pearls, huge pearls. More beautiful than anybody had ever, ever seen. So everyone was astonished. They didn't know you could grow pearls. And Krishna took these pearls and he made them into ornaments for all of his devotees, except the gopis, because they refused to give him them. And everyone in Vrindavan was decorated with pearls. Not only the human beings, but also all the cows and even the monkeys. Now, any of you who know anything about monkeys, 
know that they don't take care of things very nicely. Right? But still, they were all decorated with pearls. So as this is going on, the gopis are looking at this and saying, well, we want nice pearls too. So they went to their family members and they asked for some pearls to plant. And they planted all their pearls and they watered them with milk. But unfortunately, the only thing that grew in their garden was thorn bushes. And meanwhile, all of their pearls had disintegrated. You know, pearls are not like other gems or stone. But pearls are not, and if they can disintegrate. So they had lost the pearls they planted, and they didn't get any more. And meanwhile, even the monkeys and the goats and the buffalo and the cows and everybody else is walking around with beautiful pearl ornaments. So they, they go to Krishna, and they say, you know, we're in a lot of trouble now because we took the pearl ornaments from our families. It was the wealth of our families, and now we've lost them. You know, have you ever borrowed something from somebody and lost it? So what are we going to do? We have to return it. They were in so much anxiety. And Krishna, can you please give us some pearl ornaments? And he said, no, you wouldn't even give me four pearls to decorate my cows. He said, if you want some ornaments, you're going to have to give me something. So they were negotiating. They had very funny negotiating talks for a long time. And finally, Krishna made one pearl ornament for each gopi and put it in a little box with her name. So this is some of the exchanges of gifts that's going on, even in the spiritual world. Of course, one time when Mother Yasoda was sending a, a big trunk of jewels to Radharani's house, and instead Krishna had one of his friends take the jewels out and bring them separately, and he got in the box. And when the box was carried to Radharani's house, Radharani's relatives told her, oh, here's some ornaments in this box for you. And when, when, when she opened up the box, there was Krishna. So what a nice gift to get. Would you like to get Krishna in the box? Nice gift. There's God himself. So there's gift-giving, there's exchange of prasadam, and revealing one's mind in confidence. So the devotees are speaking as uh, Nirottama Das sings, Hasya pari hasya sambhasane. There's laughing and joking and talking with one another. And of course, the conversations between the residents of Vrindavan, they are very deep meanings. The scriptures that we have in this world, Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita, they all have layers of meaning. You find that as you, the more you read them, the deeper you go into them, the more you find that there's layers and layers of meaning and understanding. And Krishna talks with his friends and they talk with him also in these layers of meaning. And they enjoy these, these different uh, double and triple entendres in their meaning. And they speak with great confidence and, and joking. So this goes on whether someone is a, in the mode of ignorance and is trying to close some criminal deal or if one is a very righteous mode of passion person trying to make money and become famous in the world or if somebody is cultivating spiritual knowledge in the mode of goodness or even if one is in the transcendent world. These three kinds of exchanges, exchanging confidences, exchanging food, and exchanging gifts go on. We have some also wonderful stories in Chaitanya Lila. So we have the friend of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Raghava Pandit, who had a sister, Damayante, who really liked to cook. And obviously Krishna does Kaviraj like to cook also, because he's describing the preparations. Dham Prabhupada says that. He said Krishna does Kaviraj must have liked to cook, and he must have been a very good cook, 
many, many places in Chaitanya Charitamrita, he gives lists of different preparations and sometimes even explains a little bit how they were made. So Damayanti is very, very carefully making all these different kinds of preparations. And some of them, like pickles and condiments, she puts in thin clay pots. And some of them she puts in little cloth bags. And then she puts the little cloth bags inside of other cloth bags. So she ends up with three huge cloth bags. And she doesn't go from Bengal to Jagannath Puri. She sends them with her. I don't know why she doesn't go, but she doesn't go. She sends them with her brother, Raghavapandi. And he has some people carry all these different preparations as if they were their very life and souls, if they were you know, precious cargo. So they're carrying them to Jagannath Puri and they bring them to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, all these bags from Damayante, Raghavapandit. And then uh, Govinda, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's servant, he gives Raghavapandit the emptied out bags from the previous year. So meanwhile, all the other devotees who've come from Bengal, uh, they also uh, cook or purchase some very nice food stuff in Jagannath Puri to give to the Lord. And they give it all to Govinda and they say, here, please give this to Lord Chaitanya. So here's some sweet rice, and here's some tasty nectar drink, here's a coconut sweet. Please give it to the Lord and tell me when he eats it. And Govinda brings it to Lord Chaitanya, and Lord Chaitanya says, oh, just put it to the side, just put it in storage. And every day Govinda brings something else for Lord to eat, and every day Lord Chaitanya says, put it in storage. And meanwhile, people are asking Govinda, did the Lord like what I gave him? And he says, oh, yes. So finally, Govinda goes to Lord Chaitanya and he says, I'm lying to all these people. I don't, I don't want to lie to them. What am I supposed to do? And Lord Chaitanya said, why are you in so much distress? Just bring me everything. But now, by that time, there was as much food for a hundred people to eat. So in our hungry farm, uh, in New Vrajdam, for Govardhan Puja, they offer over 2,000 kgs of sweets. Last time I was there, they they planned for 2,000. They ended up with 2,400. Did you say hungry farm? Yes. <laughs> but they're not that hungry. <clears throat> so the temple room, it's a big temple room. It gets one-third full of sweets. Bigger than, the, probably twice as big as the size of this room. Covered with sweets. And they bring their Govardhan Sheila down and they put him in a boat made out of sweets where he can ride his boat made out of sweets through this ocean of sweets. So they have so many sweets that they can't possibly eat all of them. I mean, it would probably take them half a year to eat all of them. They distribute them to the whole village. Or I was recently in uh, Novosadi in Czech Republic, and they said that they had on Janmastami a festival where all the devotees brought some prasadam. And it, they brought so much prasadam that they, again, they had to distribute it to the village, and they still had some of the sweets left uh, for the next festival <laughs> on Radhastami. So there were so many sweets accumulated from all these devotees that it was enough for a hundred people. But when Lord Chaitanya said, bring them here, Govinda was able to remember who brought which preparation. Oh, this is from Adwaitacharya. This is from Sivananda Singh. This is from Lord Nityananda. And Mahaprabhu ate all of them. <laughs> he ate enough for a hundred people in one sitting. And then he said, is there anything left? So Govinda said, there's the bags of Raghavapandit. Damayanti's cooking. Lord Chaitanya said, well, why don't we save that for now? And a few days later, by himself, he opened up every little bag and looked in every little clay pot. And he was tasting a little bit of everything and appreciating so much for cooking all the different tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, and astringent. And then for the next year, he ate a little bit 
each day. And what was astonishing was that none of this food spoiled. So this food that was enough for 100 people to eat had been collecting over a month, and some of it was made with dairy products and with fruit. And, uh, under normal conditions, it would have spoiled. But it all stayed very, very nice. So this is how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was receiving prasadam, but how he would also give prasadam when there was a big festival, like after the passing of Haridas Thakur. It said that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would put as much prasadam on each person's plate as ten persons could eat. In fact, uh, Swarupadamadar had to ask him to sit down and stop serving because he was giving everybody so much. And also, Lord Chaitanya would give everybody exactly what they liked. Now, sometimes we think that if you're advanced in spiritual consciousness, you shouldn't have any likes or dislikes anymore. That's what some people say. People think like that, right? Oh, that's a different thing. Maybe some tapasya. But a person may say, I don't, but they may not want to tell you what they are, but that's different than having them. So a person may say, oh, an advanced devotee, they don't have any likes or dislikes. They just like everything equally. But actually, as we understand our spiritual nature, then we actually discover our eternal likes and dislikes. Even in this world, we have likes and dislikes. Some of us like to wear blue, some of us like to wear purple, some of us like halva, some of us don't like halva. So that's true also in our spiritual body. That's one of the meanings of individuality. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he knew what each person would like, and he would give them that prep that they would like. Of course, Krishna would also do that. So it's described that when Madhya Soda would leave the room, Krishna would take off of his plate the different things that different devotees like and give them to them, knowing exactly how to please each of his devotees. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would also very happily distribute prasadam. Of course, when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was distributing prasadam, nobody would eat while he was serving. So generally in India, the person who's serving waits until everybody who they're served has eaten before they eat. But when the Lord himself was serving, none of the devotees wanted to eat because the Lord has to eat first. So again, Swarupadamadar said, you have to sit down and eat, otherwise everyone's just staring at all the prasadam. (laughs) So we also have, of course giving of gifts by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his associates. We have Jagannanda Pandit, who was giving the Lord gifts that weren't so appropriate. So sometimes that happens also, right? Just out of affection, Jagannanda Pandit, he brought this very valuable oil from Bengal. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, I can't use this, I'm a sannyasi. If I go around, you know, smelling like flower oil, <laughs> then people will think I'm trying to attract women. So there's just like you go to these Muslim countries where by nature there's, uh, there's no water, actually. There's no fresh water. I don't know how they lived there before the oil boom. Of course, there weren't very many of them who lived there. I suppose they mostly got just some water from a few oasis that are here and there. But as far as a big population, like you find now in these Middle Eastern countries, there's just not the water to support them. Most of the aquifers are full of salt water. So the people there have grown up in a culture for thousands of years where they don't bathe very much because there's just not much water to bathe with and there's not much water to wash your clothes. They, they live out in the desert. So what they've done instead of deodorant and bathing is they have these robes they wear, the men. They wear these robes and on the top of the robe there's a little tassel and they take this tassel and they dip it in perfume. Right? And that's, so, of course, there's this sort of combination of body odor and perfume. Sounds very French. Scent that they're, that they're walking around in. 
Uh, by the way, that part of the world, especially Oman, is really known for perfume. So it was interesting when I was there. The Indians who were there, I told them, while I'm here, I want to buy some frankincense and some perfume for Radhashama Sundar and Radhamadava, because I was going to India. And they said, oh, we didn't know that that came from this country. They said, we'd go to India and buy perfume and bring it here. I said, no, this is where the best perfume in the world comes from. But So anyway, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he didn't want to be wearing some sweet-scented perfume. And so he told Jagannanda, he said, thank you very much for this gift, but I am sorry I can't accept it. And Jagannanda, he felt so bad that he broke the perfume, he broke the clay bottle on the stairs, and then he went to fast. And then Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, knowing that he was fasting, he said to Jagannanda Pandit, I'd like to eat at your house. He invited himself over for lunch. And so Jagannanda Pandit cooked for the Lord, and the Lord, after he, when he was eating the prasadam, he said, even when you're angry, everything you cook tastes very good. Which is not the fact Normally, no, it's not like that. And, and after Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was finished, he didn't want to leave until he saw Jagannanda Pandit eat, because Jagannanda Pandit had been fasting for three days. And Jagannanda Pandit said, I'll, I'll eat. he kept saying, I'll eat later, I'll eat later, I'll eat later. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told his servant, Govinda, you, you don't, you know, stay here and make sure that Jagannanda Pandit eats before you come back. So they had this nice exchange of, of gift-giving. Or, of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gave a nice gift to Raghunath Dasko Swami of Govardhan Shila, and a Gunjaberi necklace. So you find many examples of that. And what to speak of confidential talks, one of the sweetest parts of Chaitanya Charjumita are confidential talks between Ramananda Roy and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, or the talks between Sarabhama Bhattacharya and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, between Mahaprabhu and Sanatana Goswami, Mahaprabhu and Rupa Goswami, and at the end of Chaitanya Charjumita, the talks Mahaprabhu has in his uh, ecstasy of madness in the mood of Srimati Radharani, with Swarup Damodar and Ramananda Roy and his other intimate associates. So these are going, my point is that these, these exchanges of confidences, gifts, and prasadam, they're going on at all levels. They go on at the very highest levels of spiritual awareness, they go on at the very lowest levels, and everywhere in between. Now, for those of us who are aspiring to be devotees, we should understand that the key, which we mentioned in the beginning, is getting a desire. Sangasa jayate kama. Kama is desire. We get desire by our association. So whoever it is that we have these exchanges with, and whatever types of confidences, whatever types of gifts, and whatever types of food we exchange, changes our desires. The person with whom we're having the exchange, and the types of things that we're exchanging. It creates our desires. And our desires create who we are. At yam yam bapis ram bhavam tajachante kalevam tam tamay bhaitikante asaratad bhavita. Whatever we think about at the time of death, that's what we become. And what we think about is what we desire. We basically think about our top desire. So I tell this story a lot how when I was a teacher, that we were out on a field trip. On the way back, we saw big billows of smoke in the sky. And it turned out there was an apartment complex on fire. Finally, after the fire trucks put out the blaze, the students and I went closer and we saw one young woman standing on the sidewalk barefoot with her three little children. So when, the, when her house had caught on fire, she didn't take her shoes, she didn't take her money, 
You know, she didn't take her photo albums, she took her children. So the time of death is like when the body is on fire. Everything, we're going to lose everything. And on a subtle level, we try to grab on to that which is most important to us, to that which is the essence of our desire. And even throughout this life, the karma that we accumulate basically comes from our desires. Our actions, karma literally means actions, our actions are the result of our desires. Because I want something, therefore I take certain actions. And my actions are predicated on what I want badly enough. You know, things I want just slightly, I don't do anything to get them. And things I really want, I do something to get them. So my activities are indicative of my strongest desires. And it's my activities that build my next body, my, my desires at the time of death, and my activities during life. So one can really say that this body we have in this life, the circumstances of our life, what kind of family we have, what kind of health and beauty we have, what kind of education we have, what kind of wealth we have, all of our life circumstances are really the result of our own desires, primarily in previous lives, but to some extent our desires in this life. Now this may not be a very happy or congenial thought for many of us. You know, I don't know very many people that look in the mirror and go, yes, just what I wanted. (laughs) You know, or that we look at our life and say, perfect life exactly what I wanted, just what I would have liked to order. So the problem is that we don't know what to desire. We desire foolishly. But eko bhavinam yo Krishna fulfills all of our desires. Krishna fulfills all of our desires. It's not Krishna's fault or Krishna's responsibility that we have foolish desires. And you can say, well, why is he so indulgent? Why doesn't he refuse to give us what we want? But that's not his way. It's not his way. Krishna's way is, is one of freedom, of a tremendous amount of freedom and respect. And Krishna has a lot of respect for his parts and parcels and for their free will, and he allows them, he facilitates them in achieving their free will, even if it's not good for them. Of course, Krishna does give instructions. It's not that he just says, well, whatever you desire, you're going to get. He's also giving instructions. This is what you should desire. This is what you should not desire. This is the consequences. Like the government puts warning on cigarette packages. You know, this is the consequences. Or they get, you know, they teach you in school if you disobey the traffic laws or if you commit these crimes, you'll go to jail. They give you information. They give you instruction. But at a certain point, you're free to do what you want. You know, the government doesn't go around. There's, we don't have, at least not in our democratic countries, we don't have, you know, four soldiers for each citizen forcing you to follow the laws. You have the freedom to do what you want with knowledge, with education. If you still do something that's harmful to yourself, then the government is not responsible that you suffer. So whatever we have achieved in this life and our other lives is a result of our desires. And the whole purpose of the Krishna consciousness movement, the whole purpose of Sadhana Bhakti, according to the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, is to change our desire. So Krishna talks about Raganuga Bhakti in the 8th verse of the 12th chapter. To just think of him with love. And then he says, if you can't do that, you should perform abhyasa yoga. Abhyasa literally means practice or, or repetition. If you're practicing something, you're repeating it over and over. And he says, by this abhyasa yoga, you'll develop icha, you develop desire. So abhyasa yoga literally means to practice over and over again thinking about Krishna. 
to constantly bring the mind in touch with Krishna. And in order to do that, then one has the external practices of bhakti, hearing, chanting, remembering, so forth. Uh, it has the purpose of always remembering Krishna and never forgetting him. And once one always remembers Krishna and never forgets him, then one can enter into Raganuga Bhakti. As Rupa Goswami says, that the only price is greed. The only price is desire. There's an amazing sentence in the Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 2, Text 3, easy to remember, 1, 2, 3, where Prabhupada says that the unhappy materialist can get out of the material world simply by desiring to do so. And you might say, well, that's easy. I desire to do so. <laughs> but again, it's an intense desire. It's a desire for Krishna and a desire for nothing else. Desire for Krishna and only Krishna. So this desire, Krishna says in the 12th chapter, comes about by repeated practice of bringing the mind back. As he says again in the 6th chapter, wherever the mind wanders, to bring it back and fix it on Krishna. And where do we get the enthusiasm to practice Abhyasa Yoga? Where do we hear about Krishna? From the association with the devotees. Whatever we eat, whatever we talk about, whatever we get, is going to build our desires. This is natural. Isn't it? Whatever people I associate with, whatever I'm eating, whatever kinds of possessions that I have, whatever subjects I'm hearing and talking about, those develop my desires in a particular way. So we need the association of each other in order to help each other desire Krishna. That, as Prabhupada said, is kind of has been established to facilitate these loving exchanges. And these exchanges nourish our Krishna consciousness. It's not a detail. Even when Rupa Goswami is talking about the higher stages of bhakti in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, which Prabhupada translates, uh, summarizes and translates as the nectar of devotion. So he talks about the five aspects of rasa. Everybody familiar with the five aspects of rasa? No? Okay. Oh, well, that's, those are five of, 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 of one of the five. So there's five aspects. One of them is called Staibhav. So you just gave the five aspects of Staibhav. Stai, stai is what, to, what you stay in. Bhav is your emotion. So you're... Um, what was Prabhupada translating that? Yeah, but he has a certain... Trans, it's interesting way he translates it. Something like continuous. I think, I think he taught... Well, actually, Rasa it has to have all five components. I think he translates it as <coughs> continuous ecstasy. I'm pretty sure that's how he translates it. So Staibhav means your essential relationship with Krishna. Do I see Krishna as my master, as my beloved, as my child, uh, as my friend, like that, as my hero? So that's one Staibhav. But that's not all. There's also Vibhav, Anubhav, Vaibhacharibhav, and Sattvakabhav. So all of those together, all of those bhavs, create rasa. Rasa is not just whether Krishna is your master or Krishna is your beloved. So the first of those is actually called vibhav. So vibhav is what stimulates. You know, the behaviors talk about stimulus and response. So of course they talk of it almost in a mechanical way. But there is a transcendent stimulus and response. What stimulates our love for Krishna? Remember we're talking about getting a desire to love Krishna. What's going to bring out that desire? 
Now, what gives you a desire to eat? Well, not having eaten for a long time. Seeing very good food. Smelling very good food. Those things, hearing about somebody eating really good food. So those things are stimulants for the desire to eat. Or what would stimulate someone's desire to come here to Belfast? You'd have to hear somebody talking about it. You'd have to see some films about it or read some books about it. Something would stimulate your desire. People just don't wake up in the morning out of the blue and say, well, I think I'd like to go to Belfast. There's something that stimulates that, that desire. So in the same way, there are stimulants for the desire to think about Krishna and the desire to always want to love Krishna. And Vibhav is, div- is divided into two main parts. And then those parts are further divided. It's divided into the Alambana and it's divided into the Udipans. So Udipans are things like Krishna's flute and Krishna's clothing and different elements of Krishna. But the Alambana is what we call the basic stimulants. The most basic, most essential items that actually increase our desire and stimulate our desire and awaken our desire to be with Krishna. And these are in two main categories. One is Krishna himself, who's the object of love, the beloved. And then Krishna's devotees, who are the lovers. They are the reservoir of that affection. So Krishna is the object of affection, who I have affection for, and Krishna's devotees are those who are full of affection for Krishna. Of course, Krishna is also full of affection for his devotees. So how am I going to have the desire for Krishna, both by contact with Krishna and by contact with people who have that desire for Krishna? Uh, Both. Not just with Krishna, not just with the devotees. There has to be both. And with the devotees, there are these six loving exchanges. And in these six loving exchanges, especially if I have these exchanges with people who have some affection for Krishna, then in the course of these exchanges, their affection will come to the surface. As we're exchanging confidences, they'll reveal that they have some affection for Krishna. And I'll think, well, boy, I'd like that too. You know, when we we read the pastimes of Lord Chaitanya and how madly in love he is with Krishna, we think, well, I'd like to be in love with Krishna like that. When you read about Srila Prabhupada, or when you just meet some devotees in the Hare Krishna movement, you think, oh, I wish I could love Krishna like that. Our desire awakens. When we eat the food that's cooked by devotees who have some affection for Krishna, and offered by devotees who have some affection for Krishna, or eaten by devotees who have some affection for Krishna, then we also pick up that mood from the food. So modern society, they don't understand that food is not just about the gross ingredients. Although there was, of course, this is a little controversial, but uh, people who study paranormal phenomena, they do something called Kirlin photography. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. Where they can photograph the auras of things. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating science. Anyway, whether, whether we believe it or not. But anyway, they photographed food, and if food is cooked by someone at home with love for their family, and they compare that to food you buy just in a restaurant or from a factory, food from the factory has practically no aura and the food cooked at home with affection it has a very bright aura so I, I, one devotee showed me this article his photographs and after that I had no doubt You know, one really has to be careful who the cooks are <laughs> actually Lord Chaitanya says that if you take gifts or you take food from materialistic persons 
Your mind becomes wicked. You end up taking on their qualities. And so if we're with people who have affection for Krishna, then the gifts that they give, the food they give, and the exchanges of confidences will all increase our, deja- our desire. And this exchange of, of confidences about Krishna or gifts or prasanam, it brings us tusyanti ramanti, it brings us satisfaction and it brings us happiness. So this International Society for Krishna Consciousness, it's certainly a place to come periodically and see the deities and a place to come and take some prasadam. Uh, but it's really a place to engage in these exchanges, which are both give and take. So some people are interested in giving but not taking, and other people are interested in taking and not giving. And we have some people, they come to the temples, they eat prasadam, and they leave. They come just when it's time to prasadam be served out, and they eat it, and then they run out the door. So that's okay. But nice to give something also. So come in and bring some. The other day, I'm, I'm sitting here. The other day when a young man came and brought all these little bottles of milk. I don't know why he brought like 20 little bottles instead of just three big ones. But anyways, he was right in front of Radhamadav and he was taking each little bottle of milk and he was offering it to the deity. It was very sweet. Now, so it also not only to eat the prasadam, but bring some, bring some food to be given to the deities. Or if you're initiated, you can help, help with the cooking. And the best gifts we can give each other, Prabhupada says here in the purport, is the holy name. So to come and join in the kirtan, to receive the holy name, to give others the holy name, but also to give of our time, if we have money, to give of our money. You know, here in this center, this center is in desperate need of people giving their time. You know, and desperately. We have basically one and three quarter people who live here. One and a half people who live here. He's that. He's always going back and forth. And it's, it's too much, you know, to take care of the deities and to maintain this place with one and a half people. It just can't be done. It's an impossibility. And so you, have, you can see that they're keeping, you know, two of the rooms, three of the rooms very nicely, and the rest not, because that's all that they can do. So to come and give some gift to Radhamanava, some gift of our time, some gift of our energy. Uh, obviously, people are doing very nice work in the gardens. But I was talking to a Chaitanya Chandra Jayapur and I was saying, you know, we have to organize some sort of volunteer program here. And what's really interesting, even materially, is that when you engage in a volunteer program, you actually get more than you give. If there's a lot of people working together, then it's kind of like when you have a potluck meal. You, you call it that here? When everybody cooks something and brings it. You almost always get far more numbers and, uh, you know, kinds of food and amount of food than if just two people cook for everybody. So it's like that. When everyone contributes something, then everybody gets far more. So if we could really meditate here how to have this center be a haven for these six loving exchanges, to get ourselves in the right consciousness, to have the loving exchanges help us be in the right consciousness, and to have our loving exchanges such that they increase our desire for Krishna, increase our desire for Krishna, increase our desire for Krishna, until our desire for Krishna is so strong that Krishna can't stay away. And he says, oh, you want me so much? Here I am. So we have, what, we have to end at five, right? No, I mean, I actually, I'm very flexible with, with special guests, and your special, special guests. So. 
definitely go. <laughs> I always think I, I saw some devotees raising hand. I know Goranga had a question. I know some. That's really if we can get a little bit of this pretty action and now it would be so nice. All right, Krishna. All right, well, whatever anybody wants. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Yeah, you were mentioning the poems. Yes. I talked about the verse in Bhagavad Gita, 7th chapter, 7th verse, where Lord Shri Krishna says, Spirit to me, everything rests upon me as oh. the time on a thread. Yeah. Sutra Mani Gana Eva. That's such a lovely verse. That's, uh, of course, that's way off track of, of our topic for today. But, but I'm relating to the poems. Yes. That's such a nice verse. Because when you have pearls strung on a thread, you don't see the thread. Yeah, yeah. You only see the pearls. And how do you know that there's a thread? Because they're Yes, they're held together. They don't just fall down. So when we look at this material world, we don't see God. But we see evidence that he's there. But he's hiding like this string under the pearls. It's also true for the association. If you see the, the, like the pearls are together... Oh, that's lovely. Now oh, look, you just related that to our topic. That's really nice. Very nice. So if the devotees together look beautiful like a necklace of pearls, they must be related by Krishna underneath it. Very nice. Actually, I, I've had the experience that if you're with people who are very materialistic, You know, even if they seem to be talking about similar things to what devotees talk about, underneath what the devotees are saying is always the concept that I'm not this body and that Krishna is a person and that he's God and that there's Radharani in the spiritual world. And even if we don't always say that all the time, the assumption, those assumptions we're making about the world become obvious in our, in our talking. Oh, very nice. That's lovely. Thanks. Just one other point. Yes. Uh, you said that uh, Lord Krishna, the sweets were distributed. And, uh-huh. uh, and actually, Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he distributed the holy name freely for everybody. Yes. For everybody's eternal benefit. Yes. So that's a great benediction by the sweets. Incredible benediction. Incredible. Generally, mantras are only given to people who are already highly qualified. Mm-hmm. What to speak of the highest mantra? Mm-hmm. In this kind of yoga. Unbelievable. Yes. Um, just excuse me. Just going back to um, Friday night. Just just to, just to clarify a, a, a question. Um, the emotion of anger you mentioned was to do with um, partly to do with uh, fear. Mm. But it was it was also was uh, excessive attachment. Was that also part? Of yes. It? At least there's at least two places in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna joins together attachment, fear, and anger. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, if you're angry, if you look under the anger, there'll be a fear, and if you look under the fear, there'll be an attachment. Occasionally, anger comes from other things. Anger is also referred to in the Bhagavatam as the younger brother of lust. And, and lust doesn't mean just sexual lust. It means any kind of intense attachment. Uh, Tamal Krishnamar has analyzed, and, and I've used this uh, many, many times, that material things are in three categories. One, things you don't get, you want and you don't get. One, things you want, you get, and they disappoint you. And another, things you want, you get, they're perfect and they're temporary. So all of those are a source of anger. If I want something and I don't get it, I become angry. 
I go to the shop, why don't you have this? You had it last week, my friends got some, why don't you have any now? Or you get it and it's disappointing. This wasn't what you advertised, this wasn't what I thought it would be, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't expect it was going to be like this. Why didn't you tell me? This happens in our human relationships too, you know, you get a job and they don't tell you that you're supposed to work 60 hours a week. Right? <laughs> or you, you, know, you marry somebody without knowing that they throw their socks on the floor. And, and then the other is the perfect thing. You know, the perfect relationship, the perfect car, the perfect pair of socks, whatever it is. And that it's temporary. And so all the time that you're enjoying it, you're afraid that, about when you're going to lose it. So all of that is related to a fear that I'm not going to get what I need. Yeah. And therefore I become angry. Anger, as I see as a way, is trying, generally, is trying to force getting what we need. So we're trying to force? Getting what I need. Okay. Or getting what I think I need. I think that this particular thing right here is going to get me what I need. And when I can't get it, or when it's disappointing, or when I'm losing it, I'm trying to force it, and I try to force it with anger. Can you be angry with Krishna? Really? Can you be angry with Krishna? Well, materially speaking, all of our anger is angry at Krishna. In fact, a lot of the anger we have in material consciousness is anger at authority, who represents Krishna. So we're often ang angry at whoever we think is the gatekeeper to what I want. Anybody, I think, you know, if that, if that person would just give me what I wanted, then I would be happy. So our anger is often channeled at authorities. Or at anyone we think is in the way of our... The temple president. Yes, very, very, very often. You have angry days and everybody yes. can express Yes, temple presidents, GBC, even people get angry at their guru, governments, uh, employers, husbands, parents, teachers... You see, there you are, being small-minded again. We want years, uh, not days. I'll give you, okay, okay, I'll give you years of anger. But ultimately, we're angry at Krishna. Now, there's another kind of anger at Krishna, which is, uh, you know, if you start talking about transcendental emotions, and you start talking, yeah, Mother Yasoda is getting angry that Krishna ate dirt. Right? That would be, be yes. So there's, there's another kind of anger at Krishna. Like I said, Mother Yasoda gets angry that Krishna eats dirt. But that's loving anger. You know, those of you who are parents, so if one of your children eats dirt, you become angry. Get that out of your mouth. And You're going to get sick. What are you doing putting that dirty thing in your mouth? And in terms of stai bhav, the, 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 the ras, it's not really a stai bhav. No? That's a very interesting question. Are the, are the seven secondary rasas, can they be called stai bhavs? Yeah. And generally, Prabhupada says that when there's the... When the when one of the five primary stibobs is not so much active, you may find one of the others. Or they may exist in conjunction with. And Rupa Swami gives a detailed explanation of which of the, which of the different stibobs can fit with the other ones. Okay. So some fit with some and some don't fit with the other ones. Yes. But just like comedy. So definitely like Krishna's friends and and the gopis, they are often engaged in comedy with Krishna, whereas Krishna's servants are not so much engaged in comedy with him. Krishna um, you were mentioning about desires and I was thinking 
you did say that desire, our desires can affect our life uh, to a major extent, and so our aim is to pu purify our desires, so to dovetail them in our service. Correct. So I was just wondering if that is the case, uh, how in in the first place when we were pure pure devotees in the spiritual world, how did we develop a desire? Didn't someone ask me this here in Belfast yes, the other day? Yesterday. Just yesterday. Yeah, that's it. I should have been here yesterday. Like, what is it in the air in Belfast or something? I get this two days in a row. And we don't even have a controversy here. We don't even have a controversy. Well, we have to create one. Too boring here, right? But it's it's an interesting question because because it kind of it looks like it bothers everybody in theoretical level. I don't know if it's a practical question, but. Uh, it definitely, it definitely is 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 the one foundational philosophical doubt that we find people have who come to Krishna consciousness. So, people who come to Krishna consciousness may have some doubt about whether there's big eagles that fly in outer space. But I don't find that those kind of doubts are very, for most people, uh, are particularly relevant or interesting. In other words, I, I, you know, somebody might read the Bhagavatam and say, well, I really, I really don't know if I believe that there's birds that can fly from one planet to another, or I really don't know if I believe that Vishwamitra Muni made people grow out of trees, and, and, and those, those sort of supernatural things. Of course, supernatural things are there in every religious scripture of the world, and the so-called logical, empirical scientists have a supernatural explanation for things also. They talk about that the universe started from a chunk First of all, there was just nothing. There was just a void. No space, no time, no anything. And in this void of no space, no time, there was a chunk of matter that appeared inexplicably, and this chunk of matter that appeared inexplicably was infinitely small and infinitely dense. So right you have a whole bunch of supernatural ideas that no one's ever experienced anything like that. And then this infinitely small, infinitely dense chunk exploded. Now, how did that happen? And then when it exploded, it forms something orderly. Now, usually, if something explodes, it creates disorder, but somehow when this exploded, it created the universe with you know, perfect orbits and so forth and so on. And somehow or other, it created at least one planet that, where things just kind of bumped into each other one day in an electrical storm and all of a sudden said, hey, I'm alive, and, and I'm going to reproduce, and et cetera, et cetera. And as those... As they reproduced, there were lots and lots of mistakes. We're not quite sure how they happened. Maybe genetic mutations. And of course, the, like 80, 90% of genetic mutations produce problems. But somehow these genetic mutations produce giraffes and palm trees and oak trees and tulips and <laughs> dogs and people. So that's pretty supernatural. I mean, that's just as supernatural as that there are eagles that fly from one planet to the other. I, I don't see that there's anybody who can explain the origin and the nature of reality who doesn't have to result, resort to some pretty supernatural things. So I find that most people can kind of deal with that. But as far as philosophy, this is the one question that's really difficult. You know, I really don't believe that I'm here because I wanted to be here, because no way would I ever want to be here because I read about Krishna's pastimes in the spiritual world, and of course I'd rather be there. Why would I ever, in my right mind, choose to be here instead of there? No way. Impossible. 
you know, if I'm the son of Bill Gates, why would I choose to be in solitary confinement in prison? You know, but it happens. I'll tell you, it does happen. Even in our experience in this life, there are people who are born into privilege and wealth and education and health and beauty who choose to become criminals and murderers and drug dealers and rapists and etc. and they're in prison. It does happen and, and you can't, you know, people try to analyze how does it happen, why does it happen. There's the sociologists and the psychologists and the psychiatrists and whoever else who tries to figure these things out, the medical doctors, you know, why is it that certain people make this decision to ruin their life? I was just reading some letters from prison inmates who were becoming interested in Krishna consciousness. I was just reading on the internet. And, you know, one of them was saying, how, how did I get myself into this darkness? I, I ruined my life. I'm completely covered in darkness, and, and, I, and I want to get out. And if you ask those people, you know, and, and you can say, okay, well, a lot of criminals, they have messed up childhoods, and they're beaten by their father and mother and whatever. But that's not always the case. There are people from loving, caring backgrounds with everything they could have wanted. And they seem to be normal, well-adjusted, happy people, and somehow or other, they made some bad choices. So it does happen. It's possible. And that's really what we did. And it's not just something that we did in the far distant past. It's something we're doing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. We are choosing right now whether we want to think of Krishna or not. Therefore, Prabhupada says, simply by desiring to get out. And my conclusion is that I have two conclusions about this. One is it's hard to understand because it's actually very gradual. I talked about this the other day. Our fall down from the spiritual world to our present position as a human being in Kali Yuga was a very gradual fall down. You know, it, it wasn't that one day we're there with Krishna and the next day we're, you know, here in this world with a bum back or something. It's just, it's not like that. But because in the beginning there's no karma. And one wants to become God of a universe. So Krishna says, okay, become Lord Brahma, become God of a universe. See, Krishna's not envious. So if you say, I'd like to try being God, I'd like to be God of a universe, okay, here's a universe you can be God of. And you can be God of the universe as my devotee. But Lord Brahma's a devotee of Krishna. And I'm sure that some Lord Brahma's say, whoops, that wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> and that's it. And other Lord Brahma's say, that wasn't so bad. I'm still a devotee. I got everything. I'm still a devotee, and now I'm God of the universe. Of course, I'm not in my swarup. Uh, yeah, pretty close. And they become attached to their creation. So I see that's one problem. The one problem is that we don't understand that it's very gradual. And we certainly cannot think, you know, why would I have chosen this life as compared to being with Krishna? But it wasn't like that. I mean, even we see people who leave the practices in the Hare Krishna movement, it's generally a very, very gradual thing. You know, first the person starts chanting 10 rounds instead of 16, and they don't follow codicy so strictly, and they're waking up at 7 in the morning. But, you know, little things. And they just look up to the next step, and they think, well, I haven't fallen that much. And after a while, it's more things. And if you just compare it to the step that's right above you, it doesn't seem like that big of a fall. And then after you've fallen down, you know, 100 steps, and you look all the way back up at the top, and you say, whoa... 
So I think that's one of the problems. The other problem is that in order to really understand this, one has to be willing to admit that they're a fool. Uh, you know, Prabhupada says in the Bhagavatam that if you read through the first nine cantos, then you become a self-realized soul at the end of reading the nine cantos. So Burjan Prabhu just recently finished, about a year ago, finished teaching the 12th canto of Bhagavatam. So he's been teaching for many, many years, all the way through from first canto, all the way through the 12th canto. They graduated their first Bhaktivedanta students about a year ago. So I was having Prasadam with Burjan Prabhu, and I said to him, so, did you become a self-realized soul after finishing the first nine cantos? He said, yes. <laughs> he said, I realize that I'm a fool. <laughs> so it's... It's really like that. That understanding this involves a very deep humility. And this humility, this is the doorway between beginning bhakti and advanced bhakti. According to Bhajana Rahasya, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, he equates nista, or the plat- beginning platform of liberation, with the third verse of the Shashastika. So until we go through that door, we're in unsteady bhakti. And unsteady bhakti is not a very nice place to be for a long period of time. And we're, we're terrified of walking through the door of humility, most of us. But unless you walk through the door, you can't get a grasp on the answer to this question. I mean, let's imagine materially, you know, somebody who commits a murder or a rape or some terrible crime like that we would imagine that for most of those people, they really don't face the enormity of the harm that they've done. You know, if you ever read accounts of of people who are in prison, and some of them at a certain point really come to grips with what they've done, and how much pain they've caused to themselves, and how much pain they've caused to their own family, how much pain they've caused to the family of the people that they've hurt. You know, but it's a hard thing to do. We're afraid of that. We're afraid of looking in the mirror and seeing, what have I actually done? Now, of course, once you do that, you find that it's very liberating. Because until you do that, you can't move forward. I, I'm sure, again, on a, on a minor level, we all know people who get hung up on something that they just can't admit about themselves. I'm sure we know all people like that in our lives, that they have some problem that they just won't admit that they have. And because they won't admit that they have the problem, they can't deal with it. And if anyone tries to tell them that they have the problem, it doesn't work. You can't even hint about it. <clears throat> you know, everybody starts to know, okay, with this person, this is, we just can't talk about this topic at all. Because you talk about this topic and they're going to blow up at you. So I'm sure that that's also true for me. In other words, I'm sure my friends know that there's certain things that Ermila just won't admit. And I don't even know what they are because nobody will talk to me about them anymore. Right? I'm hiding them from myself. But we can see from other people that it's such a simple thing. It's not that big of a deal. Even if they've done something terrible, if they would just admit it and deal with it, then you could move on. Isn't that correct? I mean, I've had some people in my life who've done really terrible things to me. And they won't... I can think of one person in particular, but there's several, who won't admit it. You know, if you say to them, sometimes they'll even say to me, well, Ormila, I'm sorry. And they'll say, well, you're sorry for what exactly? Well, I'm just sorry. Well, what what specifically did you do? I want them to actually understand what they've done, and they, they won't do it. 
But once they do it, that would be it. I, I wouldn't dwell on it anymore, you know? Then we could just kind of move on with life. So Krishna's like that too. One has to actually admit that without any cause, without any rationality, for no reason, without justification, I've, I've, I'm hating you and I envy you, although you're giving me everything. Not only did you give me everything, you are giving me everything. You're fulfilling all of my desires. You're giving me whatever I want. You're full of loving kindness for me, even when I'm in a mood of envy and rebellion. And I am hating and envying such a person as you. And in that envy and hatred of you, I've caused so much harm to myself, who's a part of you, and therefore I've also harmed you. And perhaps I've harmed other living entities, but really I can't harm any other living entity outside of their karma. The main person I've harmed is myself. And to really see how much harm I've done to myself and thereby indirectly given much pain to Krishna. And to really see how much I've harmed the person who loves me the most. So that's a very difficult thing to be willing to see. Of course, once one is willing to see that, it's actually things are very easy and, and immediately the burden is lifted. But we're terrified to see it. And because we're terrified to see it, therefore we ask this question and say, how could I have done that? No way I could have done that. I wouldn't have done it. But we, we, not only did we do it, we are doing it. It's something, it's something that's happening more or less in the present. And if we're not doing that, then we're going to be constantly in spiritual ecstasy. So if we're not feeling overwhelming, constant, ever-expanding spiritual ecstasy, then more or less we're in a state of still of envy and hatred towards Krishna. Yes, Prabhupada. Uh, just considering the point you're making about coming to that point of remorse and mm. repentance, um, it seems that while we're still attached in the material world to um, all the wrong things, basically still attached to crime, to being mm. criminal, Yes. but um, we, we can't actually come to that point. We have to be, it seems we would have to become purified, but it might be the case that it takes purification before we can come to that point. Generally. Uh, that point of not wanting to do wrong. Like, let's get these out of the criminal, uh, unless these people who have done so much harm themselves and others, unless they come to the point of um, some sort of detachment from wanting to do it or feeling some satisfaction in doing that, yes. then they won't come to that point of remorse. But it's very hard to say what comes first. And it's very hard to say what will spark that. It's a true story I read one time about this, this man who's father was, I believe his father was a minister. Anyway, he was, a, he was a very religious Christian. And somehow, I mean, one of the situations where the kid had a very nice upbringing, no problem, and somehow he became a hardened criminal. At a certain point, his mother died. It was just his father. And his father was praying for him every day. He had a, a you know, regular program of praying for his son every day. And the father died while the son was in prison. And even in prison, he was a problem. He kept being put in prison into solitary confinement because he was so aggressive and violent with the other criminals. And one day in solitary confinement in the dungeon of the prison, from somewhere else came the thought, you have so much energy, if only you would use it for good. What wonderful things you could do. And what he claims is that that wasn't really his thought. He doesn't know where the thought came from. But somehow he accepted it, and he decided to transform his life. And he attributes 
that thought coming to him to the fact that his father was praying for him for years and years and years and years and years. And, years. and then he turned around his life. Another very interesting story, and uh, there's a whole book you can read. It. I forget the author. It's called My Descent into Death. So it was about one art professor in a university who was a very aggressive atheist. So he wasn't just an atheist, he was a proselytizing atheist. And he told his art students, you may not in my class create any religious paintings, I don't, any religious pictures, I don't want to see anything that has anything to do with religion while you're in my class. So he was, uh, he was American. He was on a trip, a business trip once in France, and he became very ill. He ended up in a French hospital, and somehow he wasn't being given proper care. So he actually left his body in the hospital. And he had one of these out-of-body near-death experiences where first, he didn't realize first he had died, and he saw what he thought were doctors and nurses beckoning him down a hallway. And he was in a subtle body, so he followed them, and as he followed them, he, he didn't know how to get back anymore. And it turned out that they were demons. And they were, they were taunting him and teasing him, and then they were torturing him and, and humiliating him. And, and of course, he was in a subtle body in many horrible ways and, and laughing. And their taunts and their tortures of him became more and more extreme as they were pulling him further and further along. And then as this was going on, all of a sudden, again, a thought came to him, which he says was not his own thought. It's simply one word, pray. And he said that he didn't know any prayers and he'd never prayed. And, you know, but he thought, well, I don't have anything to lose. And at that point he realized that he had died and he was you know, basically going to hell. But he thought, well, I don't know how to pray. I don't know any prayers. So he started thinking about songs that had the word God in it, like, God bless America. Land <laughs> and he just started singing songs like that. And as he started doing that, these entities would back away from him. And they, they would yell at him even more, but they'd back away. And they'd start saying, stop that, stop that, there's no God, no one's going to help you. But he saw that they would get scared. So he got encouraged by that, and he started thinking of any, anything else with the word God in it, or whatever, you know, and he was singing louder and louder. And eventually these entities went away, and he, he saw a light. And he started, he was then met by some higher entities. And he saw, like, it just... His idea of meeting God was just as kind of a, a person, but he didn't see a person. He saw just a light, but he was speaking to him. Anyway, when he came back in his body and he gradually recovered, he became religious to the point that he became a minister. And he wrote this book, and he gave up his art profession. He was traveling and teaching. Interesting experiences. He talks about going into churches and seeing in the ceiling uh, angels and celestial beings singing along with the participants in the church and sometimes feeling so much joy that his hair would stand on end and he'd fall over stunned in the passageway and his wife would get all embarrassed and have to get him up and say, don't act like that at the church. So one time when he was addressing an audience, there was one nun that came up to him after the lecture and said, I can't believe it took so long. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I was one of your art students and I was in training to be a nun at the time and I would go back to the convent and I, would, I told the sisters how you wouldn't allow us to do any religious paintings, and all of us agreed that we would pray for you. <laughs> she said, so for 13 years, you were part of our prayers. So, you know, what is it that sparks that 
that remorse? What is it that sparks that self, um, you know, honesty? Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur says that God is neutral, but that bhakti follows the desires of the devotees. That somehow the devotees decide, you know, let this person have bhakti. I mean, in both these stories, what the person was given was a chance. Basically, a door was opened for them by the desire of others, by the petitions of others. The door opened and they walked through it. And they, the door was opened even though they hadn't given up their material attachments. And we find with Srila Prabhupada, when Prabhupada brought Krishna consciousness, you know, he was bringing it to people who had not yet given up their material attachments. He opened the door and they walked through the door and then they gave up their material attachments. So it can happen either way. To give up your material attachments first and then experience remorse or to experience remorse. And it, it's also, there are some degrees, you know, there's some remorse and some advancement. You know, Krishna describes it like a tree, like a banyan tree. Have you seen a banyan tree? <coughs> Anybody else here seen a banyan yeah. tree? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, also. Yeah, many, in Hawaii also. In Vrindavan. In Vrindavan, yeah. Many in Vrindavan. Not in Mayapur. More, not in Mayapur. There's, there's some in Calcutta, in the botanical gardens, and where uh, I stay with my son in Hawaii, there's a lot of them. And you don't know where, there's actually Banyan Drive, where there's one Banyan tree after another on either side of the road. But those are Chinese ones. They're not quite as complicated as the Indian ones. So the Indian Banyan trees, you can't tell anymore where the root is. You know, It's a very complicated system. So as we progress in bhakti, we're, we're cutting off like branches. But finally there's a point when the whole root will get cut off. So we have periods in bhakti where we feel some degree of remorse and some degree of repentance. And then we give up some, atta- some attachments. But at a certain point we'll feel complete remorse. And it's, it's, it's interesting because the great devotees write these prayers. I am the most sinful of all sinners. You ever read those prayers and think, what are they talking about? You ever thought that? What are they talking about? You know, here's some person who's had a, led a pious life, and they're a devotee, and I'm the most sinful of all sinners. I'm worse than Jagai and Madai. And what sinful activity do they do? Why are they saying that? Because when you see this root of envy and hatred towards Krishna, you see it as, as, the, as the root of all evil. You see it as the root of all sins. And therefore you feel yourself to be the most... You, know, you have the most wonderful person who's giving you the most wonderful thing, and instead you hate them. I mean, we know how we feel when we try to do good for somebody who just resents it. And is just envious. It's so terrible. I'm sure we've all had that experience where we try to do good for people. I know I had the experience as running a school that some of the people who became the, my greatest antagonists were the people who I went out of my way the most for. It was a very peculiar thing. It was a lot of times. You know, after a while I thought, maybe I shouldn't really go out of my way for people. That sometimes when you really give to people, they end up hating you for it. You know, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe they, don't, maybe they feel that they're in debt or something. I'm not sure what it is, but it's terrible. It's terrible. When, when you've given somebody, when you've really gone out of your way and given somebody extra time and extra energy and care and maybe you've even bent the rules for them and you've done so much for them and then they turn on you. It's, it's, it's horrible. So that's what we've done. 
And that's the root of all sin. All, all other sin and all other evil is just manifestations of that. So the devotee in their humility see himself as the most <coughs> foolish and the most low. But that's, that remorse, and this is a very important point, it's a very important point. When the devotee feels that remorse, it's like chutney. Chutney is very spicy and very sweet. So it's also very sweet because that remorse is in relationship to Krishna. It's not in relationship to pride. Materially, if I'm just, if I have to face something I did wrong, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And some of them are really embarrassing. One time I made a financial mistake just because I didn't add up the numbers right. I was just rushed, and I just didn't add. They were just didn't add them up right, and I ended up costing people money. It was very embarrassing. You know, so these sort of things. Why are they embarrassing? Why did that really embarrass me? Because I have a sense of pride that I'm a careful person. You follow? I have an abhiman. I have a false ego that Ormila is a careful person. I have that idea about myself. So when I did something that was careless and caused harm to people because it was careless, I had this inner sense of shame and agony. And that's all it is. It's just shame and agony. It doesn't, there's nothing sweet about it at all. I mean, it was sweet that the other people involved weren't angry at me about it and let it go and never harassed me about it. But there was nothing sweet about it. So I may think that humility is something like that. But the reason that that was so shameful and so painful was because I couldn't maintain my pride. <laughs> you follow? It was hard for me to go around thinking, I am a careful and responsible person. Whenever I think that, there's a part of my mind goes, remember when you forgot to add the numbers? Maybe you're not really so careful and responsible. Maybe you'll do that again. How do you know you might not do it again? Suppose anybody found out what you did, then they wouldn't trust you anymore. You know, I all those little things. But remorse with Krishna is very different. It's about, it's actually about, it's part of reestablishing our relationship. So if I'm really good friends with somebody, and I damage that relationship, and I'm feeling remorse as part of reestablishing their relationship, I think of it like, you know, you're sitting on a couch next to your best friend, and you're crying on their shoulder, and you're saying, I'm so sorry I hurt you. And they have put their arm around you, and they say, it's okay, I still love you. So that's very sweet because the remorse is a door to reestablishing the relationship. It isn't just something that's hurting our pride. So it's not something that we should be afraid of. You know, we think it's going to be like material shame. And we think it's just going to hurt. So there is going to be some pain. I'm not going to say there isn't going to be some pain. There will be some pain, undoubtedly. But it's it's a it's in relationship to something that's very sweet and very wonderful. So it's actually something we should be very eager for. You know, when will the day come that I can actually see myself honestly and I can really come to Krishna with a repentant heart and I can be ready to have a genuine relationship and let go of all this stuff. Another nice thing about real remorse is if you really take responsibility for something, then you can do something about it. If I think that my being an illusion is something that's imposed on me from the outside against my will, that I really don't want it, then I don't have the power to do anything about it. 
But if I see, you know, it's just some whimsical God who's forcing me to suffer. But if I understand that it's my choice, well, then I can unchoice it. You know, if I'm the one who's ticked the box, I can, I can unsubscribe, yes. You know, it's not just, just like I, I'm doing a campaign to help this one devotee. And part of it took me some time to do it publicly because I had to list where people could send the donations. So I had to list my email. So my email address got listed on all these public sites. And exactly what happened is what I thought would happen. I started getting spam that I'd never gotten before. So there's nothing you can do about that except put it in your spam folder and figure your email or recognize it after a while. Uh, then you're just sort of a, a victim. You know, you're trying to do good and you get victimized. But if you're the one who subscribed, then you can always unsubscribe. So we're not a victim of illusion. It's not that I was trying to be a good person and, you know, I just got victimized. I subscribed, and I subscribed knowingly. I didn't subscribe innocently. It wasn't that I didn't know what I was getting into. And when you see that, the blessing of it is, oh, I did it, I can undo it. When you're a victim, you're just hopeless. What do I do about this? I can't do anything about it. So it's very liberating. It's liberating because it allows you to reestablish your relationship with Krishna, and it's liberating because it means that you can actually do something. So it's not scary. It's not like, you know, some material shame or some material victim. So I hope it's all right that we discuss that again today. Now we have gone to 5.30. Yeah, that's time for Arati. Okay. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, very, you very, very much. Thank you for having me here in Belfast. Thank you. Come again. And uh, if anybody wants to contribute towards travel costs, we're allowed.